on a personal level, I do have issues with OnlyFans. It's a very predatory system. Um, and it's concerning to me the the way in which uh, the, the recruitment model of like, if you recruit somebody to the site, then you make money. It, it's, it's, it's a weird kind of almost, it's, it's enabling this like pimping culture to emerge. And young girls, 18 years old, are being targeted. Well, even younger than that, Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. Super excited to be back. I know we had a bit of a hiatus. We're going to try to do more frequent updates again, back to weekly. It's going to depend on the guest schedule, but I didn't want to sacrifice conversations for a schedule. So I want to make sure I'm only putting out episodes that I'm super excited to release. And I think that it's a fun or important or both conversation. So we'll be consistent as the quality of the podcast. So for the shout outs, I want to say thank you so much to Bill Clute, Greg, someone, my mystery man, John and Lauren C. Thank you so much for all of those cups of coffee. All of the funds directly go back into the podcast, whether it's for equipment, um, getting a guest in, ads, all that stuff. Couldn't do it without you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This week is going to be a spicy episode. So buckle up buttercup. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what he was thinking, but I got a hold of the CEO of Exodus Cry, Mr. Benji Nolot. Um, so Exodus Cry is kind of, you can do your own research. There's a lot of, there's a lot of press about them. They're not the most uh, desirable campaign within the adult industry. And I wanted to see the man behind the mission kind of get a better idea of their take on the adult industry, what, how they wanted to regulate it, if they want to regulate it. I mean, what I found is a really compelling conversation, someone who seems to have their heart in the right place. And I'll, um, I'll let you guys decide. But I think it's really important to have conversations, especially when we don't align down the line. I think that's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we get insight that we might not have otherwise. And just a reminder that it's okay to disagree. You can be friends with someone you disagree with. You can dislike someone you disagree with, but what's important is to be respectful and to just be open. So that's what the podcast is all about, is curiosity, openness, respect, empathy, all that good stuff. So let's go into this episode with an open mind and please help me welcome Benji. So I have been kind of bracing for this episode because I know I'm going to get so much <laughs> feedback, we, we can say, for doing this. Um, you probably will as well. But I guess one of the main reasons I wanted to do this is one of my main principles of the podcast is respecting people that have different worldviews than you, having dialogue. And I feel like that's the only way that you can learn to understand anyone, right? For is sure. to human humanize them and get to know them and all of those things. So for sure. Um, I think that's what was really enticing to me. And I couldn't help but notice all of the work that you have been doing and a lot of the traffic that you um, have been getting, especially on social media. So if you want to kind of introduce yourself and how you got started um, with Exodus Crime. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So my name's Benji and I'm the founder and CEO of Exodus Cry. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast because I, I agree. I share a similar value and the value is 
to value disagreement. That's okay. <laughs> like, look at the societies that only value one way of thinking. You know, those are totalitarian dictator societies. It does not end well. And so, um, and, and in that, I, I think, you know, and especially, you know, in our culture, in this context, there are, it's, it's very easy through social media to make caricatures of people that, that don't actually represent the full scope and three-dimensionality of who they are as humans. And we've created this very two-dimensional world, again, with a lot of like narrative building that that turns people into caricatures on both sides. And, and so I always appreciate the opportunity, you know, for longer form discussion to figure out, you know, where are the areas that maybe there's things we agree on, you know, and, and, and Hey, maybe we don't see eye to eye on everything, but I, I'm sure there's things that I can learn from you and vice versa. And so um, at no point in my life have I personally ever felt like, you know, I've arrived. Uh, I'm keenly aware of my own frailty as a human and my own journey of continual growth. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I think you know that's a good that's a good starting point for a conversation like this, where clearly we probably have some some you know differences of of, of opinion on things and and differences of worldview, and that's mm-hmm. okay. That's okay. <laughs> like it's okay. One hundred percent. So, but yeah, like I said. Um, Founder of Exodus Cry, we've been working in the anti-trafficking space now for about 13 years. And, and recently, the past couple of years, have been really staring more closely at the subject of pornography. And so hopefully at some point, you know, we can get into some of that. For sure. So I guess a lot of when we talk about caricatures, especially on both sides, right? All I when I saw your stuff going viral, um, I feel like it was maybe it was like during the pandemic. I feel like is mm-hmm. where there was a lot of attention on yeah. your guys's mission. Um, I followed Jenna Jameson, and she was a huge supporter of the work that you were doing with Pornhub specifically and trying to eliminate. I, I guess first, what was what was the goal with with highlighting Pornhub and I guess have is that like mission accomplished or is there still more work to be done with that sure. company specifically? Um, and I guess what drew you to it? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, the the subject of of Pornhub really became relevant for us at the end of 2019. A colleague of mine had been doing some investigative research and discovered that these user-based upload models of distribution for pornography were enabling um, videos of real abuse to be featured on the site and videos that um, feature people who were um, underage. Um, And so so that became a pretty significant concern. And the more that we dug into it, the more problematic it it seemed. And, And so that that focus kind of like snowballed and snowballed into um, early 2020 when this same colleague released an op-ed in the Washington Examiner um, addressing the issues with Pornhub, which then catalyzed a petition to go forth to, you know, uh, demand them to be shut down for this complicity with illegal content. And, um, and, and then, you know, 
it just this this campaign, like you said, it went, went viral and drew a lot of attention to the current model of distribution for pornography mm-hmm. um, and the way in which that model, like I said, enables um, videos of real abuse, trafficking, rape, revenge porn, so on and so forth to be featured. And, um, and so we made a lot of traction with that campaign to address this, um, you know, exploitation that, that was happening on the site and ultimately resulted in, in, Pornhub removing about 80% of the content on their site or about 10 million videos. Mm -hmm. So we're still kind of on the the journey and the trajectory of holding them accountable um, for their role in this. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we feel like significant traction has been made to eradicate um, this uh, criminal content and the system that allows it to exist. Um, And, you know, for my part, I actually have uh, worked um, on a documentary going into the porn industry and interviewing performers, producers, directors, so on and so forth. One of the things that I learned through that experience was that people in the industry, most people in the industry don't want child pornography out there, you know? Right. Yeah. And for the larger kind of society, I don't know if they realize that. I think there are, you know, some people who just imagine that, well, all pornographers have thorns coming out of their head and just imagine that, you know, they want all of this. And it's very definitely very two very different kind of worlds. So mm-hmm. I think that's where people like Jenna Jameson and, and even people currently working in the porn industry, we found agreement with because they also were like, hey, we don't want this content either because mm-hmm. you know, they want to protect their interests of continuing to, to produce legal content mm-hmm. and illegal content jeopardizes and threatens that. So it was a very unique campaign from the standpoint of garnering so much agreement from people from so many different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, one of the encouraging things about that campaign. So I guess – this is where things, I guess, get gray or people have an issue with going after Visa MasterCard specifically it, because I guess Pornhub or representatives over there were saying that there wasn't a lot of content in comparison to platforms like Facebook, for example, which I think lately reported – you probably are more privy to the actual stats than me, but I believe it was like 20 million individual pieces of content. Mm-hmm. Um And I guess where I would say the difference is, is Facebook goes out of their way to report those numbers to try to help um, companies like Child Rescue Coalition, which I'm uh, friendly with their CEO, Carly Eust, and they do a really amazing work when it comes to trafficking and finding this illegal content. And when people went to Pornhub, they were like, well, we don't have anything. So I think that Mm-hmm. It comes down to like who's an honest actor, right? And who's being upfront with the material. Where I, what I read was that these victims that came forward had reported the material and said, hey, I wasn't consenting or I was underage or, you know, this is abuse, whatever it is. And the video still didn't come down. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, for my part, I, first of all, I would, I'm like, yeah go after all of them. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're about to go after Twitter pretty aggressively with something. I heard that. So mm-hmm. I don't want child exploitation content 
or uh, rape content or trafficking content um, anywhere. I mean, these are, and I don't even, I hesitate to even call it content. It, these are recordings of crime scenes. And um, so it's, so I definitely would be in agreement that, you know, all, all of these social platforms should be addressed with regards to this. But like you mentioned, there is a pretty significant difference between the reckless, utterly reckless way that Pornhub was handling this, which, I mean, it's not, it's not just reckless. It is total complicity um, by virtue of the moderator situation. Uh, and their, their moderator system was nothing short of a joke. Um, I mean, and this is coming from whistleblowers inside who worked for Pornhub who have mm-hmm. said these things, whereas Facebook, you know, again, like you mentioned, has thousands of moderators and is aggressively going after this. Now that's not to say they can't improve and that's not to say there aren't issues there, but to try and conflate the two is mm-hmm. very different. I mean, Pornhub operates like a criminal organization, and Facebook, you know, for their part, you know, appears to be trying to operate above board. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that that's that's a pretty distinct di- uh, difference. So, yeah. So, I mean, I to- I agree in the sense that like I'm very pro paywall. I think that's one step, right? That's one step mm-hmm. to make sure that someone who is underage isn't consuming content that they shouldn't be. Um, I think that. I don't have an issue with a government ID. I was reading your website and it was saying like that was one of the call to actions on your site, which was implementing a government ID before you could Mm -hmm. get into these um, explicit territories, if you will. And I think that's fine too. I mean, I was talking to my husband and he's like, well, if I was scrolling on TV and all of a sudden I saw this really bloody Texas Chainsaw Massacre scene, I'd be pretty pissed off. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. sign up to see that and it Mm -hmm. shouldn't be any different with a kid, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's not to take all responsibility either away from the household because I do think it's the most important people are are the parental figures or the caregivers, right? And they should be the ones that are teaching about sexuality and that just – that doesn't happen in the majority of homes. So that leaves that child to listen to a friend or to explore the internet and that's terrible, right? Like that – I obviously come from the industry. I think what consenting adults do is between consenting adults, I have a huge issue with underage kids just scrolling for free. I just – I don't want that either. Um, So I'm in full support of that call to action. I guess – when it comes to um, when it comes to the material, it's like, well, I guess what was the level of of involvement when it came to the OnlyFans uh, situation that recently happened? Because I know Xbiz specifically called out your company when, and was saying that you were one of the main um, hitters with putting pressure on the banks to kick out all of the sex workers from OnlyFans. And to that, it's like I hope not because as someone who's a performer, I can tell you – being on a porn set is far more dangerous to me as a performer than me filming from my living room. Do you know what I mean? And I do agree that there needs to be some way to verify that I'm consenting and I'm of age before I upload that content. And that was very loosey goosey up until maybe a year ago on OnlyFans. Um, But now their recognition, like I could, I almost didn't get approved and I've been in the industry forever because it has to like scan your face kind of like an Apple phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess long-winded, but level of involvement, what do you think about it? Um, are you being caric- caricaturized? All of that. 
Always. <laughs> always. Same. Always. I can relate. Same. Um, and I, I get it. I get it. I mean, if I read some of the stuff that has been printed in my name, I would probably caricaturize myself as well. So that, you know, I, it's it's interesting that the podcast kind of medium has emerged at this time in history in which social media has resulted in so much characterization because it is through longer form conversations that I think some of that can be deconstructed. We could better understand each other. Mm -hmm. Ultimately for me, you know, I have a, a, a vision of humanity in which love and empathy are kind of the highest values. Mm -hmm. And so I try to look at everything through that, through that lens. And, um, and I, you know, I, I believe that it went through the context of long form content that there it, there's a, it's a better um, it's a better way for us to kind of learn about each other and empathize with each other and understand each other. And, mm-hmm. and so um, so, yeah, with the OnlyFans, um, I, the, the issue with OnlyFans is the same issue that we have with anyone that is hosting or distributing pornographic content, which has to do with um, age and consent verification on both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it turned out through a report by the BBC that a lot of um, non-consensual content or uh, was appearing on OnlyFans and content that was of people under age and that they didn't have an effective way to deal with this or to moderate this situation. And so therefore put pressure on the, that put pressure on the credit card companies to take action in requiring them to do a better job of cleaning this stuff up. And so, you know, in terms of the methodology, how do we get there? You know, there will probably be differences of opinion, but I hope that we can all agree that whether it be OnlyFans, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Pornhub, that we don't want these sites to be infested with illegal content. So at the end of the day, that is an issue that we as a society are facing. Mm-hmm. You know, in relative terms, the internet is still fairly new. Um, and I think it, there, there are, it's, it's a, this alternate universe and we still have to learn together how to navigate this universe to, to be safe for, for people and for society. The entire idea of society is that it, we're better off together than we are alone. And that requires humility. It requires a level of humility to say, look, I don't have it all figured out. You don't have it all figured out, but hopefully if we work together that we can, you know, come to agreement about certain values and things that we want to establish as sort of the the bedrock of our society. Well, the internet has brought us a whole new set of issues to wrestle with. And so for us, for me personally, and for us as an organization, that's where we are with it. We're wrestling with these things. Um, You know, the... (laughs) God bless Gustavo. Um, he writes very uh, aggressively about Exodus Cry, and and you know, um, yeah, just I, 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 it was in, in, internally at Exodus Cry, we kind of chuckled amongst ourselves because really we had nothing to do with the OnlyFans thing. Um, it was more the domino effect of 
things that have already been taking shape mm -hmm. to try to create better systems um, mm -hmm. for accountability um, on sites hosting and distributing pornographic content to ensure that this content is not criminal, that people are not being preyed upon. On a personal level, I do have issues with OnlyFans. It's a very predatory system. Um, and it's concerning to me the, the way in which uh, the, the recruitment model of like, if you recruit somebody to the site, then you make money. It, it's, it's, it's a weird kind of almost it's, it's enabling this like pimping culture to emerge and young girls, 18 years old are being targeted. Well, even younger than that, but let's just say 18 year olds are being targeted with this aggressive kind of recruitment um, method to lure them into like, Hey, show a little bit and show a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And, you know, at some level it's turning us into a prostitution culture. And so there is a question for me of like, well, if that's a good thing, then why aren't we teaching that in schools, right? Like, I mean, if that's such a good thing and that's, that's so empowering and liberating and what we want for our young daughters, then why isn't that being held up and celebrated as a great job to pursue in high school and college? And, you know, um, I think there's some obvious concerns with a culture that is sending so many young women into prostitution, if you will. And, OnlyFans seems to be mainstreaming that in a way that raises concerns. Well, I guess with that, I think that it's super important to highlight the difference between someone who's um, being exploited or even they think that they're making a conscious decision, right? And maybe they're not. Um, like they're consciously consenting, but they're not. So there's a difference, right? And I, I personally think 18 is too young. I've said that several times. You don't have the capability to understand all of the fallout that's going to happen from this decision. And it's not to say that it's solely because that decision is wrong. It's just the relationship that society has with that decision, right? So mm -hmm. it's almost like you make this decision to do, we'll say porn or a sex worker, prostitution, whatever, and let's say you realize that that's not what you want to do and you want to quit this line of work and you want to go back into society. Unfortunately, as it stands, especially the more public you are with it, so let's say that you're famous and you do this and there's film and it, it can never be erased, it becomes really difficult, if not impossible, to, to reintegrate. It's like a permanent A that's on you. And unless you spend the rest of your life apologizing for what you did, you kind of get ostracized. And that's that's dangerous too, right? There's like no rehabilitation whatsoever. There's no room for grace in that in that regard either. And it's not to say everyone that makes that decision needs to go there because there are some people that have thought it out and it is just – it is what they want to do. They do feel empowered. And I would agree that that's the minority of the population and there's probably a reason for that. And again, it's not to say that it's wrong. I just think that there needs to be, I guess, more of an open space for conversation because – Yes, I'm a parent, and if I had a daughter and all of a sudden she started an OnlyFans at 18, I'd be a little bit concerned, right? Mm -hmm. And 
it's not being hypocritical. It's hypocritical. It's just because of my experience, and it's, sure. it's not. It's it's just knowing what she's in for, right? And it's yeah. I can't undo what I've done, and I yeah. love what I do. I'm very fortunate that I'm one of those people that had a relatively healthy experience within the industry, and mm-hmm. I'm very much in control of my content. I do know that's not the case for everybody. Um, so I think it's everybody's responsibility. It's both everyone in society to again, have more grace, compassion, and empathy, and not to be so judgmental and to maybe provide other opportunities for these women that are making this decision as a means to an end, right? Um, Andrew Yang, (laughs) he was tweeting the other day, and he said that one of his solutions to this would be UBI. He's like, if there was UBI, then there'd be a lot less women um, or disenfranchised people that felt like they had to turn to sex work. And but he, at the same time, he's like team sex work is work. And I was like, well, you can't you're kind of saying all people that are going into right. sex work are doing it because they have no other option. And again, it's not to say that that doesn't happen, but that's not the whole story. Right. You know what I mean, totally. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the OnlyFans model goes, I don't have an, a problem with an affiliate program because I think that's fair if I bring you somebody and I know you're I'm making you buckets of money, then I should get something that exists in a lot of other industries. I do have an issue with especially more mainstream models that are going out there and they're like, I started an OnlyFans and in 72 hours I made a million dollars. Like that's kind of messed up because I've worked my tail off to create this brand and I don't make that kind of money. And you from, you know, Oklahoma or whatever, if you decide to make this life-changing decision, you're not going to probably make that money right. either. So it's right. it's very dishonest. So I would agree with that. Um, that level of the recruitment isn't really ethical if you would – if you know what I mean? Totally. And it takes – I mean, what that has to ta- – what that takes into account is this idea of the implications of pornography, um, the implications on someone who – appears in pornography. And I think that's a really important point that you raise because, um, it, you know, on it, there are long-term mental health implications, um, for many people who appear in pornographic content. Um, and so if you are at a young impressionable age and they're and you're being heavily recruited and there's not a consideration for that kind of larger framework or more critical thinking about that, or a healthy support system to, to process that decision with, it could destroy that person's entire life. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's really sad and unfortunate. I, it, it's, it's unspeakably tragic. Um, to your point about wearing the A, it's, yeah, I... I, I'm trying to think about how to comment on that because I, I find that tragic. Um, and, you know, I don't like the idea of purity culture from the standpoint that it frames people as pure versus impure. Um, and it frames sexuality and your purity as something that can be taken from you. But purity is of the heart. It is not something that can just be taken from you. And so I don't like categorizing humans as pure or impure. I view all humanity as fractured, a fractured and broken but beautiful species. 
And so my framework is more along the lines of sexual integrity and how do we pursue sexual integrity in our lives? Like virginity is something that can be taken from me. Sexual integrity is not. And, um, and so what does that look like? And what does that mean for every person? And how, how do we show each other grace in this society for choices or that we've made or mistakes that we've made? And it goes along with the whole punitive justice model of our cancel culture today, in which you, you know, the way that we kind of spar against each other in our society today is, well, I found this one thing that you did 10 years ago. Now I'm going to build a narrative of you based on that so that I can dismiss you as a human being, expunge your existence, extinguish you from society. And that's just not helpful. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, I, I much prefer a restorative model of justice in which, yeah, we can acknowledge our wrongs, um, mistakes that we've made. And then, and then in that provide opportunity for growth like teaching moments. And I just, so, um, so I'm, I'm grieved over the idea of, you know, having to wear that a, like you said, if you're somebody who has been in the pornographic industry, that, that grieves me. Um, if I was to be held account for mistakes that I would be made in my life as having to wear an a, I mean, it would be crushing. And, and, and so, um, you know, like Jesus said, let him who, let him who was out without saying cast the first stone. I, I don't, I don't like a society that, that does that. Um, but it is a reality when we talk about people going into the porn industry and what to be prepared for. One of the things that I discovered is the, the approach of certain agents who would actually recruit young women knowing that this person is going to, you know, they're going to sort of like, I, I don't know what the proper term is, but age out of porn after doing just a handful of scenes. Mm-hmm. Like we're just getting a handful of scenes from them and then they're out. Like, because, and, and, but selling them on the idea of you're going to be this star and all these. So very like manipulative and coercive recruitment tactics on the part of agents full well knowing what not only what these girls would be subjected to these women would be subjected to but then the lifelong implications of that so like mm-hmm. get them to sign the release form i did the seed i made the two thousand dollars and now you're sort of like ostracized out and live with the knowledge that that is out there for some people maybe they're able to make peace with that but like one performer said she said if i could choose between living another 40 years with the knowledge that that content of me was still out there or one year with that content being fully expunged, she said, I would choose to live that one year. Now this is somebody who had gone into this willingly by her own Mm -hmm. profession. And so, yeah, there there's, it's, it's a significant thing to consider um, the implications of having, you know, being in that vulnerable place of, of sexual vulnerability and having that published for mass consumption. Right. And it's one of those chicken and egg situations, right? So it, 
it's kind of like if you d- if you lived in a society that was more graceful and less judgmental and less kind of you have to align with our morals otherwise um you're divergent and you you're the problem right if we had a society that was more accepting and i guess tolerant of that behavior would there be better mental health would there be less of that dissonance that is happening because it does i know plenty of performers that are in the same boat and i know plenty of performers like myself that are like i don't care like i'm proud of my body of work all of these things right there's there's both exist at the same time. Um, I do know that even with me being okay with my decisions, that it doesn't say I, d- I haven't had my struggles and I haven't had, you know, moments of is this all worth it? Because, I mean, I have family members that don't talk to me because of my career, mm-hmm. ones that I was really mm-hmm. close with. And it mm-hmm. sucks. It was mm-hmm. someone that I, I've really valued and loved and I still love. Mm-hmm. Um but that's you know what I mean. But that's not my stuff. That's that's their stuff that they have to work out. Because again, it comes down to right. um, judgment and who is in a place to judge. Like we're all flawed. Like you said, we've all done things that are less than perfect. And to be in a position where again you're demonizing an entire group of people because of one decision that you don't agree with doesn't make sense. So. You get a lot of – I live in the South, so there's a lot of people that have an issue with my career choice, and you can't deny that impact on mental health, right? And it's not to say that there's other stuff because I've also – I've dealt with stuff on set that if I wasn't who I was, it could have maybe had a longer-lasting impact, right? I'm very – I can be abrasive when I need to, and I can stand up for myself when I need to, and I'm very okay with being disagreeable. That's kind of my comfort zone. I'm very fortunate in that regard given the choices that I've made. Um, But I know that that's not the case for a lot of women, right? Women tend to be more agreeable, um, and especially in those contexts when you're on set and you're the only woman surrounded by men, and then you have this guilt that no one's going to get paid if you don't do this, Um, your career is going to be over, and you've already done film, so now what are you going to do? There's just a lot of moving parts to this. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that's when it it comes to something like OnlyFans – um, or these other platforms that have verification. To me, it's like that is so necessary. That's so necessary for the the safety of these women that have made that that choice. Because um, I've never been in a threatening situation pr- producing for myself. Mm-hmm. Any th- threatening situation I've ever been f- was working for another company, and sometimes really large companies. Like you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be shocked. But some people would be shocked, right? Because a mm-hmm. lot of that is supposed to be of, above water, and it's not necessarily always. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, I hope that the future of the industry is is con- consenting adults producing for themselves through a verification process. Like there, it is verified that they are consenting mm-hmm. and of age, and that they're not beholden to this mega company that can ruin their lives mm-hmm. or can put them in, in danger. And I think that that also helps allevi- alleviate um, illegal content being posted or hopefully, right? I mean, there's countries that don't have porn at all that have a lot of, um, you know, abuse material that's being s- circulated. So it's like, well, how do you get to that that root? Because right now we're seeing a symptom. So attacking the symptom never extinguishes the problem. So I would love your take on the root and how you plan on tackling it. Because I've, I've thought about this for a long time. I'm also involved in um, a trafficking nonprofit 
And so it's something that's like dear to my heart because it's one of like the darkest corners, I think, in humanity. And it, it brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. Mm. Um, but I'm at a loss, right? So like, how do we find that? Mm. Thanks for your work in that space. That's awesome. Um, yeah, <laughs> you're raising so many like really, really huge things that we have to unpack as a society that we have to wrestle with, that we have to discuss. Um, I'm trying to figure out what angle to come at it from because there's a lot here, you know, for us Mm -hmm. to discuss. Um, Maybe I should just kind of like back out for a second wide and just kind of give a little bit of perspective for how I came into this. Sure. Um, Because I I also think that, you know, as a man, um, I want to be careful how I speak into this space um a a lot of my a a huge significant portion of my passion and message um is to men um and like where are you coming from um i've even talked with webcam models that describe the experience of webcamming as far more abusive than prostitution Mm because the men feel more entitled to um, demand certain uh, humiliating and derogatory acts from women, as well as bully them, as well as um, say all kinds of awful things about them. So the experience of being in front of a web camera, you know, it has has kind of the notion that like, well, this is, I'm choosing, you know, in my autonomy to do something that's very self-contained and all that, but it's putting you in exp- in a situation where you're going to be exposed to men who often feel entitled, who themselves have grown up in porn culture and, and, and adopted a lot of very toxic ideas and beliefs about women. And then those men are offloading their own existential um, animosity towards women, um, their own existential um, hatred of women onto these women through awful comments. So if you're a, a woman in front of that, you know, and you're kind of absorbing that as sort of like the offloaded receptacle of men's rage against women, that has mental health damages. So I don't think that there is this um, kind of like one way to do it that now it's all safe and secure and sanitary and above board and like we just don't need to worry about it anymore. I think there's a lot to wrestle with when it comes to this this subject of how we treat our sexuality in a in a world where we have the internet and you know we're all kind of in touch with each other. Um, I don't want to come across as pretending to have all the answers. I, but I, I do believe that there's a lot that we need to take into consideration and that we need to wrestle with. Um, but would it be okay if I just kind of pull back for a second to give a little bit more of like a framework for where I'm coming from with for all sure, that? Yeah. Jump in something else. Okay. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say to your point, I, that is a that was a really good point that you brought up about the camming, right? Like so it's you're right, it's not completely sterile and there's going to be some effects of that and we see that even with social media, right? So I think you don't necessarily need that 
that sexual angle for that to be true. You can <laughs> simply be a woman that exists yeah. on social media yeah. and you're going to be harassed. It's an unfortunate yeah. response to the anonymity that these people think that they have. And I don't really know how you solve that either. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Because then you get into um, censoring or First Amendment encroaches mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you get someone that's tracking your IP to make you verify you are who you say you are before you log on to social. So that becomes that slippery slope argument. Um, I don't like it more than the next guy. I don't even read half of my comments. Otherwise, I would lose my mind. And this is on public forums. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I have a Candace Instagram that is nothing. The, there's zero sex appeal on, on that. It is podcast. It's family. It's my horse. It's it's real me. And um, it exists just as much there as it does on my other profiles. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm, uh, it's 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 hard. It's yeah. It's awful to hear that. I I think that on one hand there there is illegal there are illegal things happening within the sex industry. You know, trafficking right. things that we've talked about on Pornhub, non right. videos, non consensual, all of that. So that's an area where I hope that you know all of us can find agreement on the side of things as you bring up that are technically considered legal, then I think on that side of things, there's just a lot for us to wrestle with. And I think there are areas where we'll find agreement and areas where we may disagree. But I don't, like I said, I don't think it's just something to say, well, this is legal. So then, you know, we don't just don't have to worry about it. It's, uh, so for me personally, I grew up, um, as the youngest of four children, I was, very sheltered in a way in my like young childhood. Um, we didn't have, you know, not to age myself here, but we didn't have like social media and phone, you know, all that stuff that kids have access to now today. I was out hunting for snakes and riding motorcycles and surfing and like doing, doing stuff that kids do in Southern California. Um, but when I was 11 years old, I watched a movie called The Accused. And this is a, a movie where Jodie Foster plays this um, woman named Cheryl, Cheryl Arroyo. And, um, and it's the real story. It's the true story of her gang rape in this bar and then her ensuing fight for justice. And, you know, I don't know what kept me so sheltered necessarily as a young child, um, aside from just being a different time. But And I don't know how I stumbled on that movie at 11 years old, but it definitely marked my life. And it, it really, I think it like broke part of me. Um, just the awareness that humans could treat each other this way. And, um, I thought at that time, rape has to be the worst thing that could ever happen to a person. So I, my, I was basically raised by my two older sisters, my mom and, and my grandmother. So I had a very, a lot of influence from women in my mm -hmm. life. And I think as a result of that, developed a unique identification with the experience of women from a young age that was very normal to me. And the experience of both of those things <clears throat> culminated when I discovered the issue of sex trafficking and realized that, yeah, rape 
this thing that really had a devastating impact on me as a kid, just, just seeing that happen in this movie was um, happening around the world at a large scale. And (laughs) I think that when I discovered sex trafficking, that the part of me that was impacted as a child came fully up and I was just completely wrecked by that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's very emotional for me because it's very personal. Like we work with people whose lives have been destroyed by this and it's hard to separate myself from that and just put it as like a issue or a statistic. Um, so that really set me on a journey of focusing my life on this. And there was a long period of time where it was hard to go to bed at night without imagining women and girls out there who were in these situations. And so that definitely created this kind of like desperation to make a difference in this space. And that drove me into addressing the issue of sex trafficking. For four years, I traveled the world, documenting it everywhere that it was happening in the creation of a documentary called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. It was my first documentary. And, um, and through that began to see some overlapping realities tied to the porn industry. And so in 2012, I kind of went back to the drawing board to look at this issue of pornography and decided to dig into it a bit deeper. Um, again, just thinking of the sex trafficking component, but then looking at the pornography from the standpoint of its impact on consumers and our world, as well as the creation of it, the human rights side of it. So the public health and the human rights side of it, the way in which pornography was being created. I, um, and so that is, that is initially what, what sent me into um, researching and investigating pornography. There's such an extreme reaction to any criticism of pornography that it's almost like, hey, just leave us entirely alone to do our own thing, or you are the devil, you know? And for me, it's like, what other industry do we allow that? Like, what other multi-billion dollar industry goes completely self-regulated without any outside criticism? So when I began to investigate the porn industry, realize the degree to which (laughs) elements of trafficking and exploitation and predatory behavior were just utterly rampant. I'm not talking about illegal rape porn, child porn. I'm talking about the mainstream porn industry was rife with coercion, trafficking, exploitation, violence. And I talked with scores of producers, directors, performers. I couldn't even believe some of the things that they share with me and some of the things that I personally observed. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so it was really through that journey that I've come into this space, not like from a perspective of shame on you, you are the impure, you know, <laughs> porn people, uh, this like holier than thou, judgmental, yada, yada. No, I came into this as somebody with a broken heart that I've never recovered from, that I can barely ever talk about this issue without getting very emotional because it, yeah, it's, it's a really real and difficult subject um, to figure out like what's going on and discovered that there was all this exploitation happening. So if you don't want the criticism, then clean up your act. <laughs> but if you're going to allow people like Max Hardcore to be voted into the Hall of Fame as representative and emblematic of your entire industry, you're begging, you're begging for people to come and bring criticism. And it it needs it. It needs it. One, one perform, per, pornographer told me this. He said, this is how I do it. He explained it to me. He said, I tell these young women that they're going to make X number of dollars doing X, you know, vanilla sex act. He said, and I do that very intentionally to one, get them to spend that money in their head before they ever get to set. So they can't get out of whatever it is I'm going to ask them to do. And two, to get them to set. Mm -hmm. He said, then in the middle of the scene, I flip the script. And now you need to do this, this, and this in order to get paid. And he said, by virtue of the pressure on set, the fact that she spent the money in her head and all the underlying dynamics that go with that of just, which maybe we could break down later, but um, he's like, of course she's going to do it. He said, and then he said, he said to me at that point, how is that not trafficking? <laughs> I couldn't even believe that he said that. This was coming straight from the horse's mouth. This was literally coming from a producer telling me that his entire model of recording pornography is based on a system of coercion that he acknowledges is trafficking and, right. and yet is sold to the public as she wanted this, she loves this, she deserves this. So I talked to a lot of these performers who have a Twitter page or a social media presence or whatever that have this appearance of, I love this, I like this, I enjoy this, but behind the scenes were totally broken um, and, you know, just completely open about the exploitation that they had endured, the abuse that they had endured. And so... What I what began to happen for me is that I began to see past the two-dimensional presentation of women in pornography to the three-dimensional human who actually has real life experiences, preferences, histories, you know, and and is somebody worthy of compassion, not just being viewed as this sex object. So that compassionate lens, um, has really changed the way that I interact with this whole reality of pornography. And I tried to come at it from a, a compassionate lens, but also with objective thinking and a critical thinking lens to engage, you know, in, in really substantive discussions about 
areas where this kind of exploitation needs to be addressed and eradicated for the safety of everyone, for the safety of people who are being featured in it and the safety of people who are viewing it. And so anyhow, I just, I wanted just to give that bigger frameworks because, you know, as soon as people slap a religious label on you, there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of assumptions that come with that. Mm -hmm. But, and they don't belong to me. Like what I see in the life of Jesus is somebody who not only came through literally the lineage of some of a prostituted woman, he, the blood of prostituted women is literally flowing in his body, but showed enormous compassion in his day for people who are in sexually, you know, promiscuous positions. So I, I right. like for me, it's not like, Ooh, gross. It's like, I'm very aware of my own brokenness. I'm aware of the brokenness of our planet. I have a compassionate lens to address it. I don't, I'm not, coming at this from a heavy-handed, top-down, hyper-religious, shame-based way. And, and I think that's important to, rec- to just say um, for the purpose of conversation, because when shame becomes a, p- a part of the conversation, it's just, it's hard. It's hard. I don't like feeling shamed. I don't want anybody else to feel shamed. So, but I think these issues are really, really, really important. And, um, that's where I kind of hold the line. Yeah, that's a lot. So Sorry. I feel like I <laughs> feel like no, I feel like it's important to establish how each of us is defining, I guess, exploitation and trafficking, mm-hmm. right? Um, just so we're, we're, we can make sure we're on the same level. So for me, exploitation is, and again, I think there's a difference between consenting and consciously consenting. And I don't know how you even go about making sure that someone is fully aware about the decisions that they're going to be making. Um, that's a whole other animal to tackle. Um, but when it comes to exploitation, I would say that it's being coerced into doing something, whether it's physically, mentally, um, even geographically, like I've been in situations where I've had companies fly me to the UK, I show up on set and it is not something that I, they know contractually that I, I don't do and they are hoping that I'm going to do it. But of course, me being me, I left, but not everyone would, would do that. Um, so I would say that that, that could be um, exploitation. When it comes to trafficking, I would say, again, it has to do with, with consent, right? So it's, is this person a willing, happy participant or not? Mm-hmm. And I guess it's like the very dumbed down version of how I view those things. Mm-hmm. No, that's 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 exactly right. Okay. Uh, and yeah, the trafficking is is the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the mm-hmm. purpose of, of a commercial sex act. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, when we talk about the realm of sex trafficking, and so so I, I'm in in complete agreement with that definition. And unfortunately for me, well, not for me, but for these poor, vulnerable women that were being preyed upon in the sex industry, it was basically the backdrop of everything that I saw. Now, I don't. There are. I met some really great people in the porn industry. I, you know, we're going to completely. D- have differences on, on our lifestyle choices and values and things like that. Fine. But I really enjoyed and came to like a lot of the people that I met. Um, some of them I still keep in touch with to this very day. So, you know, it's, it's, again, I I don't want to be guilty of creating a caricature. I don't, it's not like every person that goes into the porn industry is some evil, you know, but, uh, so, so just to clarify that, 
But the normalization of the use of coercion as a part of like the backdrop for the production of so much pornography or the recruitment of people into it was mind blowing. Like I could not have fathomed how, uh, how widespread that would be. I, I talked to one performer who you undoubtedly know, she's a, a contract performer and this was back in uh, 2013 and we sat down together and now, mind you, this is a contract performer, one of the rare who can actually be described as a porn star. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we sat down. I had not even asked a question. And I just sat there and she was sitting across from me. I was kind of like getting my audio, you know, figured out. I just kind of like took a deep breath and then she started. And and she was like, she said, I'm going to tell you something that I've never told anybody before. And she said, and I don't know why I'm telling it to you now, but I just feel compelled to tell you this. And she proceeded to tell me her story of getting into the porn industry, which is, which was a, a, a story of trafficking. And again, here is somebody who's held up as the one who has chosen this, likes this, deserves this, whatever that cover narrative is that says this is all above board. She's an autonomous, empowered, liberated individual that she fit that mold outwardly publicly like and to to support this cover narrative but the reality of her own story was one of trafficking and so even in those cases that appear above board there's so much that we don't know and as a potential consumer of pornography you know it, it um i which you know i i'm not i'm not a consumer of pornography but just uh that fact if i was a potential consumer of pornography would be enough for me to go i i just don't i don't feel safe um mm-hmm. um fueling an industry in which you don't really know what's going on half the time and so that's why i say a lot of my message is really directed at men because it's not it's not even so much like why are women going into this and doing this? It's like, why do you need to cultivate your sexuality by looking at a screen um, and um, or buying some or paying somebody to do something for you? Like, do you have a foolproof way to qualify that person's choices in life? And, um, you know, if you don't, then what does that say about you? Like that, that you're willing to compromise the integrity of this, you know, person um, through your choices. So, yeah. See, so I, I agree. I actually wrote this piece on ethical porn years back, and I know maybe to some some of your followers or supporters are gonna be like, "That's an oxymoron. It can't exist." But in my mind, I think it absolutely can, and it's by somehow being able to have some verification again that the set was ethical. There was no coercion. All participants are willing and of age. Yada yada yada. Um, and again, where we're probably gonna disagree is when I look at porn. I see it as an it can, I see it as being able to provide a lot of things, right? Like it can be just entertainment, right? Whether you like it or not. I hate violent films, but nonetheless, it mm-hmm. is entertainment for some people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's similar to a lot of 
a lot of things that make our brain go crazy, right? Like alcohol, movies, touch, eating. Some things can be a problem for some people, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a reality and I absolutely think that needs to be tackled. Like some people have a problem with food. I can mm-hmm. go eat ice cream or a cheeseburger and mm-hmm. it's not going to ruin my life. But for some people that could ruin their life, right? If they're totally. extremely obese, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, and it comes down to a lot of a lot of factors that we probably don't even have time to get into, but but fundamentally self control, right, and self regulation mm-hmm. and accountability. Yeah. Um, I totally right. agree with you in the sense that I wish that there was a way that before you consumed content, you knew without a doubt that it was ethical, ethical content, right? Because unfortunately you vote with your dollar. So whatever you're spending your money on, you are helping to lift up that um, that industry, if you will. So again, when it comes to third-party platforms, I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done. I just don't know what those steps are because for me, I think out of the question is is banning the industry because prohibition doesn't work. We've seen it in a lot of things and it tends to make things a little bit messier. Um, And even when you talk to people that like their sole mission is to find these women and children that are being trafficked, the further you push people underground, the harder it is to find them. So that kind of doesn't help anybody, right, is to abolish everything. So when it comes to regulation, I have this – this buddy of mine that's way smarter than I am. And we talk about really big world problems and all the crazy stuff that's happening happening in the news. And he he kind of says, you have to look at issues as not for my house, not for my community, not for my state, not for my country, not for the world. And then that kind of implies the level of regulation and how much you want the government involved in those decisions that you're making, right? Mm-hmm. So you might not like what's going to get me canceled today? You might not like um, the the idea of same-sex marriage, right? I'm sure that still exists in in communities and in, in individuals. So you have to say, do I not like that for my house? Like, I'm not going to do that. Do I not like that for my state, states' rights, and, hope, and vote for them to make it illegal? Do I not like that for my country? Hopefully the federal um, government makes it illegal, or do I not that want – I do not want that for the world and I try to, you know, expand upon that. So I look at porn the same way. Is it not for my house and I'm going to teach my family my values around um, explicit content and yada, yada and scale out? So when it comes to regulation, I guess, where do you see a solution for this? Is like, is your solution to abolish everything because that's like the way that it's just not accessible accessible to the main masses online even though we both know like the dark web exists and it's still going to happen one way or another mm-hmm. or is it re- regulation and if so what kind of regulation do you see working yeah um that's a great question uh i i i do not agree with a top-down model that um okay i gotta i want to try to think about how to how to address this subject um i think with regards to okay so let me make a distinction here (laughs) so i'm just kind of like trying to find my thought process um the distinction i want to make is is first of all as 
you know, a lot for, for whatever reason, if you happen to be somebody who is a Christian in our society today, there's all kinds of stuff that comes with that as opposed to any other religion in which it's never even a consideration. Like nobody says, you know, about Steven Spielberg when he makes a movie. Yeah, but you're Jewish. Like it's, 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 it's not even in the discussion, but as soon as people find out that you're a Christian, there's all these assumptions that are made about you. So I just want to clarify that I do not believe in imposing upon society, uh, beliefs, practices, ideas, things that they don't subscribe to. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a distinction. And I think that is true for any religion. If you are a Christian, a Catholic, a Jewish person, if you're an atheist person, if you're, if you're a Muslim person, whatever, there are certain, you know, moral guidelines, if you will, ethics that you subscribe to as a result of your belief system. Mm-hmm. Now, where some of the church has gotten into trouble is trying to take beliefs that apply to them specifically based on their subscription to this and in a top-down way impose that on society or pose that on in- individuals by law. And that that is where things get really tricky and dangerous. And so that's um, – and, and I mean, an example of this would be Sharia law, you know, where like, you know, if I live in whatever country that has Sharia law, but I'm not a Muslim, like I don't like I'm like, I don't. And let's say I'm a woman and it's like, look, I don't believe what you believe. And I wanted to go drive. Stop trying to tell me I can't drive because I don't I don't believe what you believe. Like and, you know, it's that way across the board with a lot of issues. So, um and, you know, that has that is one that has come up on the gay marriage front of people feeling like, dude, like, I don't believe what you believe. Why are you trying to use your belief system to impose on me something that I don't subscribe to? Like that. And, and, and I think when the church puts itself in that position actually undermines the spirit of Christ that who came to kind of disrupt the hierarchical um, system of religion of his day to deconstruct that. And, um, and so um, in my experience and my belief system, God gives humanity the dignity of a free will. And for every person to choose what they believe, what they don't believe, what they subscribe to, what they don't subscribe to. So, so that is, so I, first of all, fundamentally believe in that, the right, the free will. Now, when it comes to governing our society, it's, I think it's okay for me to be influenced by my faith, but those decisions that we have to make as a society center more around a civil discourse about ethics Mm-hmm. not i believe this therefore you have to subscribe to it and so in the realm of civil discourse as you know caring citizens that hopefully want to build an ethical society for the betterment of everybody yeah there's a lot there's a lot to discuss there um and when it comes to pornography um i don't think that you i think the issue is, is 
you know, to respect the law, to respect the Constitution, to respect people's differences of opinion than mine, but to find the areas that do need regulation and hopefully build agreement about that to mitigate, minimize, eradicate um, exploitation, trafficking, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, so yeah, so I don't, I don't feel like the way forward is, you know, to come down in this top down way and ban and, it all. Yeah. And impose something, um, that, you know, in, 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 in a very real sense may fall within, you know, certain legal protections. Like if those legal protections exist, they exist, you know? And, um, and, and so I think that the way forward is really to look at the areas that, that do need regulation that fall outside of those legal areas to work together, to address those with regulations and then to continue having conversations about the areas that are more gray. That's another thing is like, there's a, it's very polarized right now. There's an anti-porn and a pro-porn movement. And it's like very black and white and very all or nothing and very, and you know, the reality of human life and the reality of all of this is there are many shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And, and um, there are certainly things that are black and white, but there are other things that f- are, you know, all kinds of shades of gray. And that's where we have to wrestle. That's what produces humility. That's what causes people like you and I to have a conversation with each other and, um, and hopefully learn some things from each other. So yeah, that's a bit of a roundabout and complicated way of, of answering your question. But I think all those qualifiers are important as a part of, you know, like I said, deconstructing some of this polarized thinking and also addressing a, I have a friend who is in seminary and he posted something the other day on his Facebook page that was like, man, like when I look at scripture, I read about values like grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and blah, blah, blah. But anytime I make a statement about anything that has to do with what I believe or whatever, it's these vicious Christians coming out and commenting. And it's the exact opposite of what I see in scripture. So none of us are, you know, immune from our propensity of, as humanity to just be mean spirited, judgmental, harsh people, you know, Mm -hmm. it it affects everyone. Um, So uh, yeah. So anyhow, I think that's what I would say about that. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean I agree that there's a lot of gray area, right? Like we can't say again, it's one of those tricky subjects and it's not to get you on my team or me on your team, but it's mm-hmm. like how can we coexist with the least amount of damage mm-hmm. done at scale, right? Mm-hmm. So Again, where do you where do you start with regulation? Because when was this? This was years ago. I was still shooting for mainstream, and OSHA got super involved with the industry for a minute. And they at one point were basically just shy of having to wear a hazmat suit on set because something they were talking about um, specifically like STDs and being able to mitigate that risk. And it was 
mm-hmm. dental dams and I kid you not goggles and other things. And I'm like, well, that's not that's there's no industry there. Maybe for like some person that's like specifically into to goggles, I don't know. Yeah. But for everyone else, that's not gonna that's not gonna work, and that's not a, a viable solution. So when it comes to regulation, it's like. Do we change the age of entry? Does right because you have to be twenty one to drink. Now you have to be twenty one to smoke. You have to be eighteen to use a tanning bed in North Carolina. Like there are a- ages of entry for things. Mm-hmm. So does that move up to twenty one? Um, mm-hmm. Does the age of consumption move to twenty one? If so, and then if that's one part, well, you also twenty one is still pretty young and your brain's still not fully developed. So how do you mitigate the risk of coercion? How do you make sure that they're consenting, um, like they're fully consenting, like they've thought about this mm-hmm. five, ten years down the road, and mm-hmm. is it something that they really want to get into? Because again, as it stands now, it's not something that you can just remove yourself from. So I don't see a place where regulation is going to make a dent mm-hmm. to a point. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Do you have any any thoughts? Um, when it comes to kind of like the human rights side of this equation, which mm-hmm. is the, how pornography is being created, um, I think there's a couple factors um, to consider. One is the issue of consent. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you achieve authentic consent within a high pressure context where money is part of the equation? Mm-hmm. And in my view, that's it's that's very difficult because mm-hmm. the reality is that consent is a very low bar for a stab for authenticating a sexual experience or a sexual you know encounter. Um, the higher bar is mutuality, and when it comes to something as intimate as sex, see, I I just don't think that you that sex and desire. Um, can be separated. I think that sex and desire are inextricably linked. And when you, when you have sex without desire, it is violation, regardless of somebody's being paid for it. So I think fundamentally, the issue of consent comes right into focus. And I think it's a very difficult one to, to, to navigate because the fact is that consent can be bribed, consent can be coerced, consent can be manipulated. I've seen the way that consent forms are used where mm-hmm. a this is one scenario pr- real life one producer producer director performer has the person sign the consent form before the scene mm-hmm. then in this case does a vanilla sex scene with them does an after exit interview mm-hmm. of the person saying that they consented and how great it was mm-hmm then invited them back for a second scene and proceeded to rape them for hours. And then, and then put it out there in this very deceptive way to say, look, we have a consent form and here's her after saying it was all great. She played the role of a victim. This is all above board. Hmm. And um, so the subject of consent with regards to sexuality is something very significant. And where I personally have, some really just um, fundamental inherent issues with the way that that is handled in the sex industry. I think it's very difficult to achieve authentic, enthusiastic consent in a high pressure context 
where money's involved. And, um, and so that being said, um, currently there is virtually no regulation with regards to qualifying the consent of people other than sign this form. And therefore, and then there's the video evidence of this being put out there as though you consented to it. It's very disempowering to performers. And I've heard performers talking about this. And I think what needs to happen is to create a system in which performers are able to have more power in bringing accountability into situations in which their consent was coerced, bribed, taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where right now that's almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, I observed you know, Ron Jeremy interacting with people years ago in which I was just baffled by the level of like his disregard for people's boundaries mm-hmm. and um, just grope, just openly like groping people and an expectation that this is all just part of the part of the deal. So there's a question in the sex industry of how do you protect the boundaries of your own sexual experience? And I've asked some people this and, and how, how do you define the boundaries of your own sexual experience? And, and the answer is basically you don't get to. Like, well, that is sexual violation. <laughs> so, so how do you solve that? I think step one is, you know, to address the issue of consent in a way that really tries to drive out the people who would take advantage of that. The porn yeah. industry. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. I was going to say, no, that, the, I mean, that's spot on. So, in the beginning um, of my career, it all made sense, right? You come in, you sign all your paperwork, and at the end, you do the exit interview, and they're like, did you have a good time, willing participant? And you're like, yeah, 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 right? Um, not a problem. Oh, look, this is like a quick, easy way to make sure everyone's happy. And then a few years into it, one of my girlfriends, and again, one of the few people that you could actually call a, a porn star, like a very famous performer, had um, been assaulted on set with another very famous performer. And again, she's been in the industry for over a decade, very reputable, respectable, signed, uh, did the exit interview because she was terrified and then later decided like, no, I need to do something about this. And then they used the exit interview as um, evidence that she was lying, all of these things, right? So I totally agree with you. It's definitely not foolproof. And again, it always gets me back to third-party Um, platforms because I would imagine – I wish I had hard statistics on this because I feel like that would be more helpful. But I would imagine that most of the creators that are on, say, like an OnlyFans or a comparable website, it's probably like a boyfriend and a girlfriend. It's probably a lot of solo stuff, right? It's stuff that you can verifiably say this isn't abuse material. It's not to say that none exists, right? Like it's still not perfect, but I would imagine it's a lot less than a Facebook for sure. Cause I think that, that they definitively found that. And it's a lot less than a mainstream site. Like as far as your, um, your propensity to be abused or be in a sticky situation. So I think that's one thing that needs to be, be looked at and as like a prospective solution. I do think whatever did happen, um, Again, they got a lot stricter with their age verification, and I think that's a great thing, right? Again, it was hard for me to get approved after having an account for years and being a relatively famous mm-hmm. person within the, in, within the industry, so it is strict now. 
Um, I don't think I do. I'm like I, I do like the idea of an ID. Um, I feel like those like you're you're starting to get some traction, right? I think it's taking away the power from these large companies mm-hmm. and giving the power more to the producer or to the content creators rather than these people that are so many levels detached from giving a shit about the performer, right? If you're all the way up in Montreal and something happens in LA, you don't care. You've never met that person and that's just part of your bottom line. Well, it it's it's in my view, it's it's the way that the entire industry is set up that functions as a system of exploitation. And it functions as a very predatory system that is set up to take advantage of and exploit people. And that that is across the board. So I wouldn't even say put the power in the hands of the content creators. You have to give more power to the performers and you have to give it to them on a personal level, but also through the protection well, that's what I meant with the content creators. Oh, yeah, yeah. Specified. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Like, like me, right? The performer. Right. Okay. Gotcha. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because even like the agents, for example, like oh, yeah. my investigation, you know, found that the agents were absolutely complicit in the entire predatory system. And here's an example. When you sign up with an agency, they have you fill out your yes and no list, things that you're willing to do versus things that you won't do. Well, immediately at the outset, there's pressure to say yes to everything because if you don't, then the then the agent puts pressure on you, well, then I'm not going to get you work. And maybe they don't say it exactly that way, but that's it's understood that that's part of the implication. And it goes way beyond even what's going on in 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 the pornography itself. Like the the biggest agent in the industry who in a way kind of like monopolized the entire industry is a guy named Derek Hay who went by the performer name of Ben English. Almost every person I interviewed in porn had some crazy encounter with this guy, either as a performer or as an agent, whether being abused by him when he was a performer or whether being taken advantage of by him as an agent. And it came out then recently in the past year or two that he was being um, indicted on, he was under investigation for some kind of like trafficking charges. And basically it appears or it alleges that he had set up this and, and many people actually told me this as well, set up some private escort business in which if you worked for him in pornography and he was your agent, then you were expected to also work on the side doing escorting, which is a whole other reality and entity. And so the the sex industry currently and and the porn industry currently is set up in such a predatory way and in such an unregulated way that I just think there has to be all kinds of awareness about these dynamics so that young impressionable girls who are being recruited into this or thinking this is a good idea to go into this are better informed about the reality of what's going on. So one thing you mentioned that I think is, is an idea worth exploring is like, okay, clearly with alcohol, we say that, you know, that there's gotta be a certain age of responsibility where, you know, we, you know, we figure out like based on our neurological development, our emotional trust you with the substance. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, to, to actually go into a store and, and to start buying this. And, and we've said that that age should be 21. 
um, the frontal cortex of our brain, which doesn't even fully, which is the judgment center of our brain, which it doesn't even fully mature until our mid twenties, mm-hmm. you know, is, I mean, that's, it's, that there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, substantive kind of reasoning and rationale for imp- imposing a 21 year old age limit for purchasing alcohol. But we say that you can go at 18 years old straight out of high school into an extremely predatory industry that has proven itself for decades not to self-regulate, to take advantage of people. Um, I, you know, that, that, that is very concerning. So yeah, I think given a few years and space from that, somebody might be able to have a more mature level-headed decision about whether this is the best choice for their life. So I think that's probably something worth considering and something worth, worth wrestling with. You, people like you who are like more level-headed, grounded, and um, uh, just have more um, a, a better sense of yourself and what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with, um, that kind of maturity, you know, comes with age. And it comes with a lot of factors like if you obviously, you know, people growing up in a broken home are going to have, be more vulnerable and so on and so forth. There are people in the porn industry who have made very calculated decisions on how to order their career, starting mm-hmm. here, going here, going here, going here. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I respect those individuals, their choice, their free will. Um, and, and I, met people whose experience was, you know, more, um, I guess you could say above board, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the rare exception. I mean, the vast majority of everybody that I met had all, all had stories like across the board of exploitation. Mm-hmm. And even those individuals who, who were much more grounded and much more level-headed and much more intentional had to work hard not to be exploited and had to Mm -hmm. be able to say no over and over and over. So it's not like this like super safe industry that really respects people's subjectivity and, and respects people's, you know, autonomy and no, it's, it's, it's a lot of like guys coming in with an agenda and really trying to push people to help create the kind of thing that's in their head, which oftentimes is they experience as very abusive. So it's a, it's shark infested waters. I don't, I don't, again, I'm not saying that as like a judgmental religious person. I'm saying that as a caring citizen, like my, my religious beliefs aside, like Mm -hmm. as a concerned citizen, these are ethical issues that really concern me. So I do think that that is one area of regulation that is definitely worth considering. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do a thought experiment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can plead the fifth. But let's say um, OnlyFans takes on your model of age, verif- age verification on both ends, user and um, consumer. 
So now it's, let's say 21. Let's say they make it, you have to be 21 to view what they categorize as an explicit page because they do have some creators that just simply cook and do Pilates, believe it or not. I, you know, I don't get it, but it's there. So to, let's say they take all the explicit content and that's in one bucket. And if you want to access that bucket, you have to be 21 and we verify through government issued ID. Um, We also are verifying on the back end that everyone is at least, we'll say 21 to just for um, continuity. So they're 21 as well. And all above board. Everyone is consenting, had a great time. Let's say even, in fact, that all content created was between a married couple or by themselves solo. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that is – that's great? Not like – not great like you agree with it, but like that's fine, mission accomplished, and like let's go tackle some other areas or is there still going to be an issue because – explicit Mm -hmm. content is there and there's a chance that someone gets a fake Mm -hmm. ID or right. Is it like a never ending? You're right. 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 Yeah. Totally. No. Yeah. That's helpful. I think it's helpful to kind of put that framework out there um, because it, it does, it does kind of raise the issue of like, well, where does this end? Mm -hmm. And and what I, what I want to say is that there, I, there is a distinction for me between my critique of pornography mm-hmm. and the larger global commercial sex industry and right. the activism that I am pushing for. So I have a critique of the large, larger global commercial sex industry um, that, you know, maybe we'll get more into that, but is... Um, is definitely critical of the entire global commercial sex industry, but respects, like we've talked about before, people's free choice, autonomy, mm-hmm. um, and and certain legalities that are protected by our constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's not to say that just because I have a criticism of the global commercial sex industry that I'm pushing for, you know, all of these things, you know, on an, on an activism side of it. Um, the scenario that you just mentioned would be a huge win. That Mm -hmm. is something that I hope we could all celebrate together, which is, you know, like, let me just bring this up as an example. Twitter Mm -hmm. has, become the marketing arm of the porn industry. So if you are mm-hmm. somebody who is in pornography, in all likelihood, you have a Twitter page in which you promote and market your pornography. Well, if you go on to Twitter, I mean, I have been subjected to like the most abusive, horrific image, like pornographic images that just immediately pop up. Like, mm-hmm. so they're, they're there and, and Twitter, that's not against their terms of service. Like Mm -hmm. it's fully compliant with their terms of service. And at the same time, they welcome people age 13 and up to have an account on Twitter. So Mm -hmm. what are you? Are you an account? Are you a platform for children or a platform for adults? Well, we want everybody. So, Mm -hmm. 
okay, so by their own terms of service are complicit in subjecting children to content that we have said is adult content. There's so many things like that across the board. So the scenario that you presented where we could begin to put age verification walls in place that require government ID for people to access this material um, is a huge step in the right direction. That's part of our campaign that we're doing right now, protect children, not porn. And, and basically what we're saying is, is like that the internet has been set up in a way that totally caters to the pornographers, just proliferating content wherever they want without any restrictions at all. Because it's become this alternate universe, um, it's become a city without walls. In ancient times, you would put a wall around your city to protect from invaders and, you know, predatory animals and things like that. Um, But in the context of our modern day times with the Internet and children, we know are online from young ages there are no walls. So it's not just an issue of parents regulating. I can't, I can't regulate what my son sees on his friend's phone. Like Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's an issue of pornography trespassing into the lives of children by virtue of not being behind these age verification walls. So I think that is a huge, enormous step in the right direction where we could like collectively agree that like, this is, you know, where this content belongs. Otherwise, why are we calling it adult content? You know? Um, And so, yeah. And then on the, so that I think for me would address a huge part of the like public health concern of, of childhood exposure to pornography. And then on the um, human rights side of this, how is this being created? Um, Yeah. It just, I think needs a, definitely a more stringent model for uh, qualifying the consent of individuals that are being featured in in pornographic content. Um, I don't know how to go about that. And, And I would love to continue this discourse with people who are in the porn industry to help figure that out. You know, well, you're public enemy number one, so <laughs> I don't know yeah. if that's, that's going to happen. Yeah, and not saying that that will that discourse will even come from me, but I think it's a conversation that people in the porn industry should be having because um, currently the system is set up to prefer the complicity and collusion between agents and producers and directors in creating an exploitative content, a context for performers. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, what do you, how do you? No, it's super interesting. I actually know Derek too. Um, him and my husband have had words. He is a very shitty person. So I used to do uh, feature dance. So that's essentially when um, strip clubs book you and you show up and sign autographs and dance and whatever. And he was my agent for that, not for film. And even with that, just like the biggest bully that you've ever, ever met. And if you want to see an industry that is garbage, it's strip club owners. It's like Mm -hmm. it's the most toxic environment. I've seen stuff that I didn't even know existed Mm -hmm. when I was uh, featuring. And that ended very, very, very quickly because I couldn't I couldn't handle it. Um, 
The problem with the agents is – so they double dip and essentially in mainstream, you're not supposed to be able to to collect from both the production side and the talent side. You kind of have to pick and choose. And then with the adult industry, they're, they're getting paid a booking fee from the company and then also a pretty hefty fee from the performer. So they're already your loyalties are split and there's no way that you can properly defend your talent if you also rely on getting – paid from these companies that are often the ones that are um, doing the exploitation or putting the girls in a bad situation. So I see a workaround where they are they actually are upheld to that law that they cannot collect from the porn companies. They can only collect from the talent so that that line is drawn. Um, but then you have to hope that, again, that there's honest actors that are the agents and unfortunately they they see a lot of the girls as commodities. And I was with one of the bigger agencies. Uh, it was a woman. So a lot of times people think that women are, you know, a safer bet than the men in the industry. And that's not necessarily the case. And even as like a relatively young person going into the industry and kind of being a little doe-eyed and seeing all these opportunities and contracts and um, toy lines, like all of these opportunities to make – what I would call a serious income, right, for the rest of my life. Like my toy line is as long as they decide to carry that, I will get paid for that. That's amazing, right? There's very few opportunities that you can create a product that you get paid in your sleep. So mm-hmm. that is an amazing opportunity. But then you have these agents that see that and they're like, well, we brought that to you. So we're going to take mm-hmm. a cut. So now your cut goes from like 12% to 6% and then that keeps mm-hmm. getting dwindled and then it goes to this other company and mm-hmm. it's them seeing the opportunity. So how do you have an honest actor come in to have the the girl's best interests at heart? And I think one of the problems is, is again, the industry is so stigmatized that it keeps away what could be good people that do help these girls, right? Um, but they don't want to be associated with the industry because, again, of that red A. So you're you're kind of creating a barrier and only attracting moths to the flame. Mm-hmm. And you can't really do that unless you have more of a tolerant look at sex. And it's not to say – it's hard because, it, again, it's you're almost in this paradox because I don't like how sexual everything is. And I know that's going to sound crazy to people, but mm-hmm. I don't want people to think what I do is normal because mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. And I know that it's not. It's kind of, you know, living this wild, wild west lifestyle. And there are some consequences that come from that. And I'm totally okay with being a cowboy. Like that's where <laughs> I belong. But that's not the lifestyle that I want for my daughter if I were to have one. And that's not one that I would want to push onto the masses. I think it's a very specific person that should exist in that space. Mm-hmm. So how do you – at at one point honor that and like the truth of that while also destigmatizing it on a scale to where I'm not ostracized for my decisions and then no one looks at that industry as as being a cesspool, right? So that you can get stand up honorable people that are participating. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of the problem, right? Is that's a terrible industry and only terrible people are involved. So then you, mm-hmm. by default, only attract terrible people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And again, it's – I think it's really cool that you've specified on several times that you don't use your religion as um, your main argument, right? Like obviously that does influence you undoubtedly. And I think it's but so it, important. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's the way that it influences me that I think is important to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that is so deeply misunderstood and misrepresented. I mean, I get it. It's misrepresented. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I get why people come to certain conclusions. For me, when I view the life of Jesus, I see a life that was characterized by love and compassion and somebody who who specifically said through the story of the Good Samaritan that the way in which to qualify the authenticity of somebody's faith is by embodying a life of love and compassion. Um, mm-hmm. And also one in which dignifies the free will choice of individuals. What Jesus was continually doing was disrupting the hierarchy of the system of powerful religious control over people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and these, and so, so, so for me, it's not, I, I come into this from a place of love and compassion and, and I, what I see is the victimization of a lot of people that mm-hmm. hurts me and that mm-hmm. compels me to want to do something to create a better world for them. Now mm-hmm. that's where it translates into my role as a citizen. It's not just that I'm informed by my faith. That's I, I'm not taking the send 10 commands to go, you know, forcing that on. It's just people are going to do what they want. Like people mm-hmm. can, and like I said, it's, it's across the board. I, you know, we all have some kind of faith in something, even if we're an atheist. Well, that now I believe that God doesn't exist. And mm-hmm. that's a belief, you know? So, I mean, it's, we're mm-hmm. all as humans struggling to understand our existence. Mm-hmm. In my cosmological view of the world, it makes the most sense that there's a creator who has set everything up and has a plan and a purpose for us. And I find dignity and meaning in that. And through the model of Jesus, see somebody who lived a life of love and compassion. That's where I'm at as mm-hmm. a citizen living in a world with many people who have different views on how this all works. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to have a respectful discourse about addressing situations in which people are not just exploited, but exploited in a routine systematized way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and from that standpoint, that is what I feel like I encountered in the porn industry is a system of exploitation that favored the predominantly men who were profiting from that as mm-hmm. agents or as producers or as directors, and then held up and celebrated as icons within the industry through the industry's largest um, awards ceremonies. So Mm-hmm. I, I'm just like, where's the accountability? Where, who is advocating for all these people whose lives have been completely taken advantage of and destroyed? Like, and, and so. Yeah, to me, yeah. no, I, I totally hear you. I totally hear you. And I think Again, decentralization is the answer to that. I think it's like anything else, right? You get this this buildup and it becomes a monster. And with, with the porn industry specifically, like a lot of industries, there's very few players at the top that kind of control everything. So there's not a lot that, that an individual can do to shake up the status quo or to create a, a, a shift from the inside. It's just 
it's very unlikely to happen. And you can look at this with banks. You can look at this um, with social media companies, right? These things got too big to to tackle. And the only way to really fix that, in my mind, is decentralizing it. And that goes to third-party platforms, self-producing, um, not having someone else in control of your body or what your decisions are going to be made. Because I can – I can tell you a lot of girls are going to disagree, but there were so many times where I felt a lot of pressure and I, I always said no. And then I got a terrible reputation within in the industry of being a, a diva and difficult to work with. And that was simply because I said no more than more people than I know. So I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not comfortable with that. That is outside of my boundaries. And then you almost get shamed for having boundaries within the industry because that's how those girls cope. Mm-hmm. They cope by saying, I'm extreme. I don't have boundaries. I'm easy to work with, right? Like I'm easy to get, get along with. And that's just the narrative that they have to tell themselves to be okay with what right. they're doing. Right. So totally. me doing the opposite is a threat to their existence or their worldview. Because I'm like, no, I fucking have boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I'm not crossing that. Um, so, I mean, I, I definitely hear, hear you. And I think I think that's really the only the only solution in my mind. And I've, again, paywalls I think are super important. I agree with the Twitter thing. Um, ironically, my account is marked as sensitive, so it's shadow banned, and I don't post anything explicit because it goes against my principles. Mm-hmm. But my name was recognized and registered, so I'm put in that list um, of like I guess potentially sensitive uh, profiles. So I guess that's like one step that they're doing, but it's simply unchecking a box if you're a kid. So it's not really a solution on mm-hmm. that end. It's just like mm-hmm. they did something to say that they were making improvements, I guess, um, without actually having to do anything. So mm-hmm. I think that'll be really interesting. But I've been curious with Twitter because I know you can't have sexu- sexually explicit content and then be in the app store, but they're in the app store and there is a lot of explicit content. So right. I'm, you guys kicked out off OnlyFans out of the app store because of that, but Twitter is the same. Right. Yeah. It What's doesn't deal make with sense that? to me. Yeah. yeah. What's the deal with that? There's yeah. – yeah, like like we said earlier, I think there's there's a lot to be considered in the realm of how big tech and big porn are currently allowed to host and distribute pornographic content. There seems to be a, a lot of room for uh, improving internet, you know, safety, if you will, mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. putting up age verification walls for people accessing it. Um, so they can't just be unwittingly exposed to these things. Um, I felt like a lot of kind of the your your question previously. Um, I felt you kind of trying to address this issue of the the stigma of pornography. So mm-hmm. I think on that side of things, um, you know that it's 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 difficult. Um, that subject is very difficult because on as somebody who is running an anti-trafficking organization, Mm -hmm. the focus of our organization always has been and always will be on eradicating 
sexual exploitation, specifically commercial sexual exploitation. We've never done anything other than that. As part of that work, we have a critique about the larger sex industry. And so the point that I hear you raising is within that critique, it's contributing towards a social landscape in which there's a stigma associated with people in the, in the porn industry. Um, and I guess for my part, you know, um, I would just say that my critique is very much at a systems level analysis. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. our critique as an organization is a systems level analysis. So when it comes to the individuals, um, I've met individuals that I really enjoy and get along with, you know, that are either in the sex industry currently or were in the sex industry in porn or are now were in porn. And, and in my like view one-to-one, there is no, like, I don't have any stigma towards them. Like it's, mm-hmm. I think as, as a Christian, I above all people should be the most loving and compassionate, you know, like I have been forgiven much. I should love much. Like there's no, so like I, so, um, but I understand the concern at a society level of saying, well, even, even so when you present a systems level criticism of something that there's going to be then a stigma that comes along with that. And I don't know how to address that. You know, it's the same thing with Christianity. It's just something I've come to accept is, you know, I, at first it was bizarre to me because I just thought, well, I, I'm somebody who has a faith. Like I believe that God made the world and chose me to be a part of it. Like I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Like, <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden I'm like, I hear like all this stuff and I'm like, ah, I'm like, I don't believe that. And I don't believe that. And like, but I just come to accept like there's a stigma that comes with that. And, um, so yeah, I think in the same way that there's a, there's a stigma, you know, over the sex industry. And I don't know if there's a way to eradicate that. I don't know. Right. And maybe, and maybe there isn't right. And maybe that goes back to the whole cowboy lifestyle. And it's just part that part of what you have to endure, if that's the decision that you're going to make, I don't know. I don't know. Human nature is a tricky thing. I think it fundamentally comes from the issue that at the end of the day, there are just going to be people who eat all exploitation aside, who disagree with the approach to sexuality that views it as something to be videoed and published for mass consumption. There's Mm -hmm. always going to be disagreement about that. And by virtue of that, there will always. So I think just on a, just on a basic ethical level. So I think that's, you know, part of, of where that comes from and where, you know, the first time I talked to you where we talked about, Hey, there's, there's things that probably agree to disagree on, you know? And for me, I just know, you know, in my approach to human sexuality, that, um, it's not, it's not something that I would want, you know, for myself, but that's not to say that I don't respect the choices of, of people who have made that choice for themselves because that is their choice to make. And um, so, yeah. Right. It comes down to that again, like what's not for you and then scale it out, right? Like how, how big of an issue do you want to make this one thing? And, and again, trafficking is very different 
then consent and then it's how do we how do we clearly define what's what so that we can tackle the problem and not the non-problem totally in my mind you know totally yeah that's a great way to steer this because at the end of the day you know as as we've just discussed there's there's going to be areas where we just agree to disagree on a very very basic level but that's not to say that there are a lot of issues for us to address that we can address that are important to address and really significantly move the needle on and that's where you know like i said before that we as access cry put all of our attention and energy is on those specific tangible things that we can do to make a difference in, in a significant way. So um, I think when it comes to the public health crisis, what I would describe as the public health crisis as a result of widespread childhood exposure to pornography, I think there's you know, a handful of things there to be considered. We talked about the age verification walls in place, but but also just the need for better sexu- sexual education. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, is that the, the publication of this content has created a world in which, well, okay, so what we know now about neurology, about neural coupling, about, um, about mirror neurons, about the way that we experience images um, in such a visceral, real, and personal way by... Mm-hmm by creating and publishing pornographic content that now is is distributed around the world because the world's been hardwired with the internet, we live in an environment that is essentially a global orgy in which everyone is invited to it and including children. And the impact that has an impact on our psyche as a society. And I believe has resulted in the corporate sexual traumatization of our planet. And so when we talk about the socializing aspects of that, if I'm living in that environment as my kind of the wallpaper of my life, then what impact does it have on the ideas, values, worldview, identity that I shape as an individual? As I'm taking in those images and those stories, how do I internalize that in the construction of my identity, worldview, values? What we are seeing is a generation who is developing some very um, distorted ideas about themselves and about sexuality and about women um, as a result of that. And so I don't think it's healthy for us as a society um, to, uh, to consume pornography as the primary form of our sexual education. And I think that a huge part of what we need to do to address that is to start having more age appropriate, aside from the age verification thing and trying to minimize the amount of childhood exposure to pornography, is having more age appropriate conversations with kids mm-hmm. growing up in this world about not like if, but when you're exposed to this, develop some critical thinking, develop the ability to deconstruct some of these images. Obviously, you know, you're somebody who's in the porn industry, but even you have, you know, clearly, I shouldn't say even you, but, but you as, no, it's fine. You know, yeah. as, as, as a caring human have misgivings about certain genres of pornography that I'm sure, you know, that you don't want to see. And like, and so how do we, 
how do we work with children and, and do a better job of, of um, educating our kids in age appropriate ways about things that they're going to see so that, so that they're able to have a framework to even interpret what they're seeing and deconstruct what they're seeing and understand like this, this is, is very unhealthy. This is, this is not something that you want to integrate as part of your sexuality. So I think that's a huge factor in, in this um, as we consider just kind of the public health side of this is the recognition that we are in a world in which these images are out there. We need to do a better job of protecting children from being exposed to it, but we also need to do a better job of having conversations with kids about this. We do have a very puritanical past in which even a conversation about sex is, is taboo. Right. And I can tell you as a religious person, that is not helpful. Like mm-hmm. we absolutely need to resurrect a value for sex that takes the shame away and puts it in a context in which it has meaning, purpose, value, and we can have a healthy conversation about, you know, this is something that you want to, um, that you don't, you don't want to be taken for a ride in this mm-hmm. area of your life. Just because you saw this doesn't mean that that your girlfriend is going to want that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and from a lot of research that I've done, that is part of what happens that you, these young boys, you know, grow up watching girls get choked and, you know, a bunch of other things and think this is what girls want. And they jump to that and bypass all these normal social boundaries to get them to do something, which the girl, depending on her makeup, um, you know, will may end up going along with, but experiencing as violating and be like, what the hell just happened to me? You know, I was like, mm-hmm. so I think um, that's a huge, yeah, a huge factor is, is just having more age appropriate conversations with kids is in our current modern day civilized society. No, I totally agree. And Again, I look at porn as entertainment. I 100% think it's a terrible idea as an educational tool. It is. It does not serve that purpose whatsoever for children or adults. Strictly entertainment, right? You're you're not going to drive down the road like Jason Bourne. Terrible idea. Like this is for entertainment only, um, and responsible entertainment. And I think a lot of the problem does stem from that that relationship that we have with shame and sex. And that's for anyone of any walk, right? You don't have to be religious to have that. um, I don't know, like that aversion to that conversation. And it's going to be awkward no matter what, but the consequences are pretty grave if you decide to, to ditch that, right. And let your kid figure it out on their own or live in this world where you think that they're just never going to stumble upon it or their friends never going to share something that is going to 100% happen. So I think it's so important to be ahead of that. You want to be ahead of their eight-year-old friend, 10-year-old friend, whatever that, you know, has access on their cell phone. You, even if you don't give your kid a phone, right? Someone else's parent gave them a phone. So they're always going to have access to the internet one way or another. So again, age appropriate conversations, not pretending it doesn't exist, not pretending that they're going to be pure forever and never see the evils of the world or adult material or whatever. You know what I mean? Just being realistic about it. Um, And it's like, I guess, how do you, 
how do you educate the parents to be comfortable with that? Because a lot of them default to the, the education system. They want the school to do it. I don't want the school to do it. I have some friends that live in California and the things that they're teaching kids in public school, I think is like, whoa, that's too fast. Right. Um, you know what I mean? So it's pump the brakes there. And you have other schools that just strictly teach abstinence. And it's like, well, you need a little bit of gas. Mm-hmm. So you have to find somewhere in the middle that's age appropriate and getting the parents to I guess, psych themselves up to be able to have that confident conversation with their kid. Um, Because a lot of – I actually follow a lot of conservative people. I have a lot of friends that are ultra conservative. And the way that they look at it is if you introduce the idea of talking about sex with a minor, like your child, they think that that's off the table, not okay, totally inappropriate. You kind of are living in a vacuum if you think that just because they're under 18 that they're not going to lose their virginity, most people do before 18, um, to a boyfriend or they're not going to like masturbate or be exposed to those situations. So you have to just understand, I guess, the flaws, if you will, of the world and that those truths exist and then how do you tackle it without saying, well, that you should go to – who was it? Um I think one of the Turning Point USA people, and they're super, super, super pristine, right? So someone had on on Twitter suggested age-appropriate porn, and that sounds crazy when you say it out loud, but if you dumb it down, like let's say there's no penetration, and it's more of an educational thing. Like I've seen – when we were in high school, they showed genitalia, right, because they were teaching you about STDs and that kind of stuff. So it's not that you don't see it. Mm-hmm. You 100% see it before that. Um, but doing it in a way that you are teaching consent and you're mm-hmm. teaching um, boundaries, right? You're teaching mm-hmm. how to say no. You're teaching, I don't know, like safety in those ways. I'm like, that's not that crazy of an idea if it's done in the right way. So not like porn, but more of just a, something that gets them to, excited to watch it. Like, I'm not going to sit there and listen to my teacher put mm-hmm. a condom on a banana. They're going to check out. Right. So how do you create something that I guess they want to engage in that's going to protect them at the same time? I don't know. I think, it, I think it has to – sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think it, it fundamentally has to do with the collective socialization of humanity and the way in which parents are specifically engaged in their children's lives around such an important issue. I mean, our sexuality is not something we get out of. Like every single one of us was born with a sexuality, with a sex drive. And and so um, as much as it is something that is still very taboo um in our world in a lot of ways um it's it's area it's an area where we need to grow where we need to mature where we need to evolve where we as parents need to recognize that we play a role in helping to steward and shape the the healthy development of our child's life including that very important aspect of their sexuality so i think it starts for me with bodily autonomy and Mm -hmm. understanding the value of my body. My body is beautiful. My body naked is beautiful. My body naked is not something to be ashamed of. Like, Mm -hmm. but there are parts of my body that are not there to be exposed to everybody. And Mm -hmm. there are parts of my body that you, that can be taken advantage of and 
And so you, you start to just at a very basic level kind of build that up because in our society, you know, it's very, it's very interesting the our relationship with sex, because on one hand, our society elevates sex as the end all of be all of the human experience. Um, you know, the more, the, ha- the more you have, the merrier, all of this, but then at the same time, completely desacralizes sex from having any meaning at all whatsoever. And it's, it's very strange. And, and I think that we have to be more responsible with our depictions of sexuality in our culture, because in my view, there are three kind of categories of sexuality. It's not just all sex is good sex, and it's not all sex is bad sex. You know, it's, it's neither. It's, I, I think that the categories that I put sex into are relational sexuality an object sexuality and a malevolent sexuality. And each one of those has different characteristics but at the end of the day, ultimately, I think for me and and what I would hope other parents would engage with their children around is elevating the idea of sex around this idea of relationality, where there, like you said, is consent involved. And more than that, that there's mutuality involved. There's a genuine understanding that of like, you know, I desire this, but what do you desire? And, and that mm-hmm. exchange, you know, that really involves two people that is currently not there in hookup culture, not Mm -hmm. there in a lot of what we see depicted in just mainstream television. And, and so I think this is, you know, just part of how we as a society need to grow and, um, and to do a better job of really instilling our, our, in, in our children, a shame-free understanding of sexuality that gives them a sense of bodily autonomy and a high value and meaning for sex and the ability to have critical thinking about it as they grow up and as they eventually make their own decisions in life. Mm -hmm. So. No, I think that's super helpful for sure is, is categorizing it and not saying blanketly that like this is all bad or this is all good because it, it goes for the same argument. It's almost like two things. Some people think two things can't be true at the same time. So it's sex is only for love. And I know a lot of people subscribe to that where sex means absolutely nothing. And there's a lot of people that subscribe to that. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle and it's like, it can, it can be what you make it. And I think that's so important because if you fall too far into one or camp or another, that's really dangerous territory because mm-hmm. one way is a really simple way to get stuck with in a loveless partnership because you think that you gave away something that you'll never get back and Mm -hmm. now you're trapped and the other way is to never form a human connection of any substance so you Mm -hmm. kind of have to be in the middle and be able to differentiate between those experiences absolutely and that's that's where you know i that's where i say that there's a there's a difference there's a there's a difference in my understanding of something versus what i am trying to push for in the realm of law, right? And, right. And, and we we talked about this almost from the very beginning is like, okay, um, I have a conviction about human sexuality that places it in a very meaningful framework in mm-hmm. which I believe it's the only way that I can wholly give myself to another person. It's, 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 it's mysterious and vulnerable and powerful and, and knit, 
inextricably knit to desire and intimacy and, and all of these things that, that yeah. constitute my understanding of sexuality that for me would prevent me from, or, or, or I guess, yeah, it would, it would um, inhibit me from wanting to take that and put that out there for mass consumption. Right. Um, so, but there's a difference between that and saying, well, I have all these beliefs, therefore you have to believe the same thing. Mm-hmm. I very much respect the view that like, um, Hey, like somebody else to say, this is what sex means to me. And maybe it has multiple meanings, you know, in this context, it means this and this context. I respect that. I, I completely wholeheartedly respect that. <laughs> and, um, but, but, but even within this, again, there's those core underlying factors where we can find, or we can all find agreement. One of them being rape is not okay. Mm-hmm. Coercion is not okay. And, you know, the idea of consent, but that's manipulated consent, that's not okay. And, um, and so, yeah, how do we grow and become more responsible, more ethical in some of those basic underlying aspects of our sexuality, just in a one-to-one context, but in a more systematized way within the porn industry, recognizing that a lot of guys come into it. I mean, I talked to performers who were, they they, they had contracts, this and that, and it would end up getting sent on a call to some dude that had a, a tripod with a camera and now he's a pornographer, but it's really some guy living in his mom's basement that, you know, put out an ad and because he wanted to, I'm not even going to say what this guy wanted to do, but to do some derogatory thing to somebody, you know? And, and so it attracts, unfortunately it attracts those people. So just recognizing some of the predatory elements of it and, and finding some agreement about some really underlying important things like mutuality and consent and bodily autonomy that can carry across the board. Mm-hmm. So. No, I think I'm so glad we did this. Um, again, I hope it doesn't, I hope people don't take it the wrong way, but I, I'm really glad that this conversation is going to exist. Um, so I, I want to say thank you. I think it was really cool of you to just be like, yeah, I'm let's do a call and like, make sure that we're all on the same page and we're gonna have a great conversation, but you were so responsive and open. And to me that, that says where your heart's at and that, you know, this isn't this malicious attack and that you don't have this ulterior motive and agenda that is being depicted in a lot of the mainstream articles written about you. So (laughs) if you want to say thank you so much, and I think that you're a great guy. And um, if you want to tell the listeners where they can follow you and how they can support you and, you know, help spread this mission of age verification, that'd be great. Sure. Absolutely. No, I I feel the same way. Thank you so much for inviting me on and just, yeah, enabling this conversation to be had. And I feel the the same way about you. I really respect you and I really um, admire you for just, yeah, creating this platform and, and being willing to to kind of like allow us to see across sides and, and have a very human conversation. So, my heart in this, like I said before, is one of just, you know, feeling a lot of love and compassion and trying to navigate the best way forward to eradicate commercial sexual exploitation from our world. Um, I have a lot of, of areas that I know that I need to grow 
and that we need to grow as an organization. So we're constantly trying to look through the, you know, the intense criticism to see, is there any truth in this? Like how, is there anywhere where we need to grow? And we have, like we have grown in a lot and, um, and I hope to continue to grow and, um, and everything, you know, that we're doing. So if anyone wants to connect with us, um, Exodus Cry is our organization. Um, we're releasing a film, uh, coming up here called, um, Raised on Porn, which tackles some of what we're dealing with. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, at our website, Exodus Cry. And yeah, I, I'd love to, you know, have more conversations like this. And so just thank you. And uh, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Chatting with Candice. I just want to do a little call to action. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode, sharing it with a buddy is super helpful for me. It's the quickest way for my podcast to grow is just by you liking the episodes and um, sharing it with a friend. You can also leave a five-star review and a comment. That is also very helpful when it comes to the algorithms. So if you haven't left one in a while or if you've never left one, um, please take a minute out of your day to do that. That would be super helpful. And you can also find me on Locals and it's locals.com slash Candice or you can go to chattingwithcandice.com and click that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help me out a ton. Small podcasts are not easy to grow. So I am relying on you, the listeners, to help me get to get big and bad and a household name. So thank you for tuning in and I'll see you next week.